She has um, created the slideshow, she's running the slideshow, she's running the live stream, and when it became clear that our regular screen was not coming down, she also MacGyvered this situation. I, I will assure you we're not going to show you slides from our trip to um, a state park, right? Which is the last time I saw a screen like this. Um, but, um, but just let's give Jen a hand because she's really... And rubber bands, and she got it done. Um, and I am so grateful. Our opening words this morning are brief ones from the transcendentalist and Unitarian minister Ralph Waldo Emerson of the 19th century. The glory of friendship is not the outstretched hand, not the kindly smile, not the joy of companionship. It is the spiritual inspiration that comes to one when you discover that someone else believes in you and is willing to trust you with a friendship. I invite our musicians to bring our opening song into this space. One, two, three.
you for that sonnet welcome to the morning. And good morning to you all. My name is Karen Schofield Vega. I want to welcome you to the Washington Ethics Society. Uh, my preferred pronouns are her and hers, which are shorthand for person. And I'm so glad you are here this morning, whether you're here in the room or whether you're joining us via Facebook. Um, visitors and guests, we hope you let a blue name tag so that we can welcome you and uh, we're eager to hear what it is that you've come looking for. We're happy to talk about what we think this makes this community so important to each of us and how that might work out for you as well. We hope that you'll join us for coffee and cookies in the lobby and social hall. Oh, and oh, so of course, skip the cookies because there's a much better offering available, which is the waffle bar, which is this morning between our two platforms. And this, um, by dining on delicious waffles, you are also supporting our teams as they're preparing for the national um, youth group gathering of Ethical Society of Young People. So please eat many waffles and contribute generously <laughs> as we're able. Um, we also would also ask you to consider sharing your email with your guests with us this morning. Um, if you see a yellow slip in your program, we'll put a sheet, and that lets us keep you up to date on activities that are coming up in the week ahead. And um, you are most welcome, warmly welcome, to participate in any of those activities as a way to get to know us better. Um, I'd like to remind everyone else that um, if you can silence any electronic devices, but while you have it in your hand, go right ahead and check in to let folks know that you are here. Um, that way your friends know all about us as well and might be joining us. Um, but silencing it lets us all be fully present for our time together this morning. And uh, for this morning, Amanda will light our community candle as I read our statement of purpose. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the work of every person. We strive for our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other we invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. As I mentioned, lights our community candle, I invite you to join in our candlelight words on the screen. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future. <laughs> so each week we ring this bell in solidarity with people around the world. Today I'm especially thinking of those who are living through and providing opposition to the chaos in Venezuela. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other around us.
Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. I encourage you to settle into your seat, relaxing your body, and finding a comfortable way to sit so you are at ease. Close your eyes or focus gently on the floor in front of you. Take a deep breath in and let it out. Continue to breathe deeply and evenly, feeling the rhythm of your breath. Notice any stray thoughts, but don't dwell on them. Simply let the thoughts pass and see how your breath continues to flow deeply, calmly. Notice the stages of a complete breath from the in-breath to the pause that follows the exhale, and the pause before taking another breath. As thoughts intrude, allow them to pass and return your attention to your breathing. Breathe gently in, gently out. Sit for a few moments more, enjoying how relaxed you feel and experiencing your body reawaken and then your mind returning to its usual level of alertness after the silence.
Thank you so much to our band of Josh and Johnny and Mari today, and the beautiful music that you are bringing us. John, I'm going to take the podium mic out. Is that okay? Yeah? Great. <clears throat> Let me see you all a little bit better. This month, we are exploring the theme of trust, and we have actually, I just want to let you know, a really great lineup for the month. Um, obviously, me today. Woo. Um, but then next week, I'm going to be joined by um, Jay Hooper, who's an ethical culture leader in training that some of you have heard speak. He's coming along with his partners, Elise uh, Ambrose and Story Michelle, and the four of us are going to have a kind of roundtable conversation about trust in relationships and love in all of its forms, family and romantic and platonic and friendship and community love. Um, and I'm so excited that they're able to join us. And then the following Sunday, we actually have um, uh, the founder of the Baltimore Mediation Group, Louise Phipps Senft, who um, wrote a book called Being Relational about how to talk with people in this era. It's just, I think, going to be a fabulous presentation. So I really hope that you'll join us for that. And then you get me again at the end of the month. So, um, so oh, thanks. 
That's nice. Um, but it's going to be a great month. I hope you'll be with us all, all through the month. I was, have planned this particular platform for um, a number of weeks, I think, all the way back in November or December. We started talking about what we wanted to do with the month of trust. And I wanted to explore the idea of what it is that um, humanists have uh, trust in. And then as it happened, I have been thinking about that a lot recently because a couple of weeks ago I was invited to be on um, 1A, the radio show with Joshua Johnson and uh, on a panel called um, Ask an Atheist. Um, I'm actually not an atheist. I, wouldn't, um, I don't use that label myself personally, so it was a little bit awkward. I had to make sure that they knew that, and that was okay, and they were going to ask, you know, some atheists and me. Um, but that didn't make it into the title of the panel. Um, however, obviously, the congregation that I serve has lots of atheists in it, as well as agnostics and theists and, um, you know, and, and folks with other religious affiliations. And so I think I like had enough street cred that I, I passed, I got on the panel. Um, and I loved the panel actually in part because panels around atheism often go kind of anti-religious. You know, it's folks talking about what they don't like about other religious traditions and um, about religion in general. And, um, and I'm not so into that. Um, probably being a clergy person is part of the reason. Um, just, I'm guessing, I'm thinking about myself here. Um, and it didn't go that way at all, actually. All of the folks were really just talking about what they believed, right? About what was important to them and what their core values were. And, um, and so it was so exciting to be part of that. But it was definitely a panel of, as Joshua Johnson said, non-believers. You know, that idea of being a non believer, which has really come into the lexicon, I think, in America in a new way, as the number of non-believers rises. We know that from all of the Pew studies, and, you know, we get shout-outs every once in a while from Obama, not so much maybe all the presidents, but, um, and, um, and so, so here we were, this panel of non-believers, and, um, and one of the asks was that, um, that as part of the panel, they hoped that we would be able to dispel or address some of the myths about atheists. And so what I found myself really called to try to speak about was I wanted to address the myth that atheists are non-believers. <laughs> you know, I, I understand what folks mean when they talk about non-believers, right? You know, they're imagining that a believer is a particular kind of believer, someone who believes in uh, God as understood by a traditional religious setting. But my sense is that atheists, like all human people, all human beings, actually believe very much in something. They believe in their core values. They believe, we'll get a little bit more into this later, in each other. It's a reasonable misconception, I think, and it's much more understandable than, for instance, the myth that all atheists are immoral. I never really get that one, and I also feel like, listen, if the only thing keeping you from killing your neighbor is a fear of hell later, I don't think I want to live next to you, right? <laughs> like, that doesn't seem great. So, but the idea of atheists as non-believers, right, like equating those two concepts, I think is pretty common in, in, our, um, in our country. And it's because believer refers to somebody who has that traditional belief in God, who places 
their trust in God. I sometimes wish when I'm doing platforms that, um, that we had like a neon sign so that every time I said the theme of the month, the sign could light up, right? Like somewhere around or above. It could be like, trust, trust, trust in neon. You could um, do something similar by doing like jazz hands and whispering it when I say the, the theme. Um, and do that really for all speakers. I think our guests will not find it strange at all. <laughs> so... Um, so the idea of someone who places their trust in God, right? Yeah. Oh, I like it. That was so good. It was really very nice. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, really, our, our guest speakers are going to find that 100% confirmation of this being a really normal community. Um, <laughs> So often we imagine that trust in God that traditional believers hold as being about believing that there's a plan, right, for their lives or for the world as a whole, whereas atheists or agnostics or even naturalistic theists are generally understood as being existentialists, folks who don't necessarily see inherent meaning in the world, no inherent order in the world, no sort of plan for how things um, how things work out. Placing trust, if we've got trust, right, maybe in doubt, <laughs> in skepticism. There's a Unitarian Universalist reading um, by a, a UU minister, Robert Weston, um, that speaks to this, I think. And, and the funny thing is, it's actually the closest UU reading I found to, um, a, that sounds the most like a Bible verse of anything, and it's called Cherish your doubts. <laughs> Cherish your doubts, for doubt is the attendant of truth. Doubt is the key to the door of knowledge. It is the servant of discovery. Therefore, let us not fear doubt. It goes on and on. This is the end. Let us rejoice in its help. It is to be the wise. It is to the wise as a staff to the blind. Doubt is the attendant of truth. I love that. I love that this particular reading is so sure of itself <laughs> as it invites us into doubt. I think about being sort of a faith full of doubters, right? It's like a congregation full of non-joiners, also something I'm familiar with. Almost every Path to Membership class, as we are talking about joining, somebody will introduce themselves as a non-joiner. And I don't know whether to say to them, FYI. <laughs> Not sure what you think you're doing, but um, but I don't. I just say, oh yes, we're all we're all non-joiners here. Please sign. <laughs> Many of you have wondered to me, with me, what it must feel like to have that more traditional understanding of trust in the world, trust in a plan, trust in everything working out for a reason, trust in being held safe in that particular way. And some of you, I want to note, we are a congregation with diversity among us. Some of you have had experiences like that, of being held safe and loved in the universe. Perhaps you have named it God, perhaps you have named it love, perhaps it has felt mystical and outside your understanding, and perhaps more often, here, I find. You have had that experience and it has felt totally understandable. It has felt like community, that being held in safety. 
We talk sometimes here about ethical culture miracles. Um, usually it's when something that we didn't think would work out would. Our screen is a good example today of an ethical culture miracle. Here we thought we would have no way to project our lyrics, and indeed, a screen has appeared before us. As you might notice, ethical culture miracles usually come about because somebody creates them, right? <laughs> because someone remembered what we had and thought and cared to show up and make it happen together. Our faith, we say in this community, is in human goodness. Our trust is in other people. Well, that seems misplaced a lot of the time, doesn't it? <laughs> Out in society at large or in our personal relationships or even, especially, we'll get back to that, in this community. Now, here's the thing that I think is important. Believers in a traditional concept of God, or as what we imagine as traditional, I want to side note that the pews of the most traditional churches are full of people with a wide variety of understanding about what belief and trust means to them, not to mention the strains of Christianity and Judaism and other theistic religions that believe in a God that hurts with us rather than one with a plan, process theology and liberation theology. That might be a different platform. Anyway, side note, even believers in a traditional concept of God feel that same way too, that it is hard to hold that trust, that perhaps at times that trust feels misplaced. That, I think, is what makes it trust, or faith, as we say, faith in human goodness. For us, it is about believing not that humans are always good, but that they have the capacity to be trustworthy, to be worthy of the trust we place in them. And let's be honest, sometimes they don't quite fit the bill, right? They don't quite live up to that trust, or we don't live up to it. Part of being a faith of skeptics, of cherishing our doubts, even in this core value, is acknowledging the limits of our faith and trust, acknowledging the reality of human beings, imperfect and messy and messed up. One of my favorite readings from Ethical Culture comes from George Beecham, who was the very first leader of this society. And I've shared it so many times that I'm sorry some of you who have been around a while are going to just be saying it along with me. But that's too bad, or you're welcome to, or you can just do jazz hands the whole time, whatever you feel like. George Beecham was the first leader of this society and, and um, really around and part of the community since its founding. And we don't have a lot of his writing. He was, by all accounts, a kind of um, a low-key person, not given to big... Um, impressive speeches and long uh, platforms written out and codified. But I love what he says here. The most necessary of all faiths is a faith in people. Faith that each individual can select their own aims better than any other person can select for them. Not faith that people will be wise, for people are often foolish. But faith that people at their best are capable of wisdom and that they can be taught to be wiser than they are. 
Not faith that people will be good, for people are sometimes wicked, but faith that people can be inspired to greater goodness and compassion. Not faith that people will always be strong and brave, for the best of people are often weak, but faith that people are capable of strength, and through faith in the potentialities of people comes multiplied strength and genuine firmness. Not faith that people are wise or good or brave or strong, but that they are capable of becoming wise enough and good enough, brave enough and strong enough to make a habitable and enjoyable world together. Spoken like someone who had been around community a long time. <laughs> someone wise in that way. But you know, always easy that imperfect and messy and messed up humanity that we're asked to put trust in. So why not, I do sometimes wonder, and I suspect that George Beecham did. Why not forget all of that? Why not just place trust in our All by ourselves, bootstraps, you know, and um, individuality. And the only one you can really depend on is yourself. And if you want it done right, then do it yourself. I mean, that way, when our trust is misplaced, we at least know exactly whom to blame. And there is something to that. I wonder that sometimes when it comes to a community like this one, every time folks join, in addition to telling me that they aren't joiners, <laughs> they, they'll talk about how excited they are to where people are kind and live their values just right. <laughs> and I always want to say, and sometimes do, you'll be even more part of this community the first time you're disappointed by it. The first time that someone doesn't live up to that. It's especially painful when it's not what we hope it might be, when there's conflict or challenge or when people don't believe in the way that we think we ought to. Not faith that people are always good or wise or brave or strong because they're not. Part, about, part of building our trust in a tradition like this one, in a community like this one, is not just about building our own trust inside ourselves, but also building our communal trust, our trust as a group of people together. The Community Relations Committee, um, which I always think sounds like a little bit like a like a PR firm of an airport or something, the Community Relations Committee, which is made up of four folks who are dedicated to helping us to create trust with each other, really, right? To build communications and help each other through conflict are creating what they're calling right now a social compact. I love the phrasing of this. It was a covenant, then we weren't sure about that language. It was a blueprint, we weren't sure about that language. It's a social compact right now. I'm not clear what it's going to be called by the end, but it'll be a something, and we'll agree on it. Don't worry. That compact is really about building our communal trust. Jazz hands, jazz hands, jazz hands. About how we want to treat each other, 
how we want to be with each other in this community, guidelines for showing up, guidelines that Wes has had in the past in different ways, bringing them fully into our lives. And if it's going to be useful, a compact or a blueprint like that, we'll also talk about our practices for coming back into right relationship when we don't treat each other the way that we hope we would. Because communal trust is about trusting individual to individual, about believing in each person's capacity to grow and change and be worthy of our trust, that trust that's at the core of our tradition. And it's also about trusting the whole community to guide people toward that, to pay attention to the needs of the community and help people who are outside the bounds of how we've decided we want to be with each other to come back in, into the trusting and trustworthy way of being that we try to create together. All of which sounds like a lot of work, and maybe that bootstraps thing is a good idea. In fact, maybe we don't need families either, which are also, newsflash, a lot of work. Or inevitably disappointing friends, don't even get me started on parents and children. People, it turns out, are a lot of work. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day, about individuality and community and going it alone and together as I was experiencing our little polar vortex. It was cold enough even for me. I am from upstate New York and pride myself on being hardier than the average DC resident. I'm pretty snobby about it, and I know that my other New Englanders and Midwesterners feel similarly. We all sort of walk around, I'm not even zipping my coat up today. Ha! Well, I will say it was kind of cold earlier this week. I mean, that is just true. Cold enough that I reached for my warmer handwear, which are mittens. I rarely wear mittens because they a little bit make me feel like a seven-year-old, right? Like I should have the clips on my uh, sleeves, you know, or the string, although at the rate at which I lose pairs of gloves, uh, that actually might not be a bad idea. But I put my mittens on, and I and I was so toasty in there. They're very warm mittens. And I got to wondering why that was, because it seems to me as though gloves, you know, you have more of your body is covered, right, by the nice warm fabric. It ought to be gloves that are warmer, but it's mittens. And the reason, of course, is that when your fingers are together inside the mitten, the body heat created by your fingers, the warm blood coursing through your body and warming you up, is trapped in there together. Your fingers are able to make each other warmer. They're able together to create more heat than they are by themselves, even when encased in the warmest wool or fleece. You know I love a metaphor. <laughs> and it's not a stretch, really, to see the importance of community in a mitten, the way that we can keep each other warmer when we are together. But it does ask us to make a leap of faith, to trust each other. I have been seeing a chiropractor for um, a couple of months now, and, um, and I find it useful. I usually go in and I feel a little off, you know, and she'll ask, like, what hurts? And then she'll do 
something. And the first time I lay down at the table, you know, and somebody holds your head in theirs and says, okay, you know, let go into my hands as I'm now going to sharply twist your neck. It requires a level of trust, right, to place yourself in those hands. And so I had been doing it for a while and, and you know, was feeling very comfortable. And every once in a while, if I haven't let go enough, she, she taps on the side of my skull. And then somehow I let go just a little bit more and she can yank it. So I thought I trusted her quite, quite a lot at this point. Last Thursday, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning unable to move my head. It was an intense neck pain. Um, it was the gym's fault. And, um, and so I called my, I got up, I took some Aleve, I called the chiropractor um, right away, and she was able to see me early in the morning. And so you know how you walk, right? Like I'm going into her office like this. I, I don't want any part of my body to move, if possible. And, and then all of a sudden, I realized I was going to have to lie down and let her move my head, which sounded like a terrible idea, actually, as I thought more about it. And, you know, she had to help me get onto the table. And, you know, and I said, be very, very careful. And she takes her hand, and I thought, oh, this is what trust is. It's not when you feel fine, or it's not as much, right? It's when you show up in pain and vulnerability. And that's true here, too. In fact, a community like ours may be unique, a congregational setting, because just in the same place that people bring their committee work and their justice orientation and their politics, they also bring their most vulnerable selves, their illnesses and their divorces and their grief. Congregational literature often points out that in very few nonprofits does the executive director, that's me in our governance system, show up at your hospital bed. I mean, call me if the head of the Sierra Club comes to your hospital bed, because that might be actually a strange visit. <laughs> but it's one that this executive director does all the time, and it creates a particular kind of vulnerability and a particular kind of possibility for trust to build. It requires and also creates a different level of trust, I think. Thinking back on that panel on the radio, one of the myths I often hear about atheists is that they have no meaning in their lives. I think the imagining is that um, they're sort of all like, you know, black French cats, right, with a beret. I'm imagining a, an all-black cat, very sleek, a beret, a cigarette dangling out of his mouth saying, you know, well, Sartre said nihilism is everything. This idea of a total lack of meaning <laughs> in the world. It's a common misunderstanding of existentialism, actually. In reality, existentialists are all about meaning-making. Far from being without meaning, they are creating meaning all the time. Just because it doesn't exist inherent in the world 
doesn't mean that we don't create it together. I mean, just look at my rampant use of metaphors, mittens, chiropractors. There's meaning everywhere, folks, if we only look for it. We make our own meaning. We make our own miracles. And it is the, in the creation of all of those things, in the way that we help each other to understand life and the way that we show up for each other, that we become worthy of the trust we place in each other. And that, I think, is indeed a lifetime process, one that follows us all the way from infancy to our final day, to trust and to be worthy of trust to learn how to be the fingers together in a mitten, creating more warmth because we are together. Oh! 
I see. 